The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. So good evening, everybody, and welcome to the A16Z Bio Clubhouse Room, where we cover many topics related to the future of bio and healthcare in a loosely structured discussion. I'm Vinita Agarwala, partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and with me tonight are my A16Z colleagues, Venkat Macherla and Vijay Pandey, as well as a group of really amazing healthcare leaders who I'm honored to have joining us. Thank you all so much for making the time tonight. So today we're going to discuss how digital health tools and platforms can be best leveraged to manage really complex, chronic clinical care. So for today, we're not talking about urgent care. We're not talking about wellness care. We're not even talking about virtual first primary care. Huge businesses are being built in, in all of these areas, but we think maybe digital health can do even more. So today we want to talk about complex care coordination and care delivery for our sickest patients, those with heart failure, cancer, COPD, poorly controlled diabetes, renal failure, patients who require clinical services at home, You know, patients for whom the emergency department is unfortunately often a revolving door. And we're going to ask the group assembled today how or if digital health solutions can help us tackle these hard problems. I'll kick it off just by going around the horn quickly to introduce everybody so that folks can get a sense of, um, of who's joined us. And then we'll kick off into, a, into really a, a series of debates. Highly encourage everybody to, to disagree with one another. It, it really pulls out the most interesting insights that way. So I'll start with Rebecca. Rebecca Harrington, thank you for joining us, is the president and co-founder of the Leadership Institute, a prominent member organization of CEOs and C-suite executives from 65 of the leading nonprofit health systems all around the country. Prior to founding the Leadership Institute, she oversaw operations for the Western Division of a publicly traded chronic disease management company. Sachin Jen, president and CEO of the SCAN Group and Health Plan, where he's charged with leading the organization's growth, diversification, and efforts to reduce healthcare disparities. SCAN as an organization serves over 220,000 patients. And prior to this, Sachin was also president and CEO of Caremore and Aspire, both organizations focused on complex care delivery. Finally, Sachin continues to be a practicing physician. And um, we share this, Sachin, but we're both on the adjunct clinical faculty at Stanford, which is a great privilege. Um, Darun Kapoor. Senior Vice President and Chief Digital Transformation Officer at Virtua Health, one of the largest nonprofit health systems in New Jersey. He oversees Virtua's digital, Virtua's digital Transformation Office, and I love this from your public bio, actually. The phrase orchestrates Virtua, Virtua's enterprise-wide master plan. Um, sounds just awesome. Look forward to learning more about it in support of an intuitive care journey for all patients. And previously, Tharun, also a physician by background, was chief medical officer for the Virtual Medical Group, a multi-specialty medical practice which he helped to scale. Finally, uh, Manav Sevak, founder and CEO of Memora Health, a health tech startup company building a modern operating system for complex care delivery in partnership with health systems and health plans all over the country. Manav and his founders started Memora as members of the Y Combinator cohort and just recently announced a $10.5 million fundraise led by our team here at Andreessen Horowitz. Congratulations. We'd also like to bring as many of you into the conversation as we can. So we'll leave about 15 to 20 minutes of the back half of the hour to bring up additional folks. Just a note that the conversation is being recorded. So if you decide to come up, 
your words and profile image may appear in a future recording. So let's get started. I want to kick us all off with just um, a question to see where everybody is on this spectrum. Digital health for managing our sickest patients. Do we think it's still underrated, overrated? You know, are we kind of, are we talking about it too much? Are we not even close to realizing its potential? Is there actually a huge role for technology in this segment of healthcare or, you know, are kind of a slew of EHR features ultimately going to suffice? Maybe I'll start with you, Tharun. Which side of that debate do you fall on? Yeah, so you, you know, I'm, I had a very, very brief stint as a consultant between physicians and I learned my consulting terminology is maybe. Um, so yeah, I, I think the question to, to think about, uh, if I can kind of like maybe tweak the question a little bit is where to use digital technologies for complex health and recognizing that, you know, there, there are, there are going to be convenience plays for, for complex conditions, but there's also going to be humanism plays for complex conditions. Uh, you know, I always like to use, um, you know, Robert, I wish I had thought this up, but Robert Pearls, you know, one of his articles in Forbes, he talked about, you know, the difference between the consumer and the patient. There, you know, we, we especially in, in, in health, traditional healthcare delivery, we tend to use the same term interchangeably, but they're a little bit different. And that is, the, but they are both, they're two sides of the same coin. There are times that we're looking for convenience and there are times that we're looking for relationships. I, I think digital tools can absolutely work on both sides of those things, but they have to be deployed differently. And so knowing where your consumer is or patient is in their journey is really crucial in, in, in focusing your, your deployment. It's not an easy turnkey solution. It requires nuanced, you know, thoughtful approaches to it. So I'll, I'll pause with that and see if, you know, if the other the other uh, folks on the call, you know, concur or, or challenge that approach. So you're saying maybe uh, underrated still on on the utility and the relationship domain, um, and maybe better recognized for for more technical advancement. Yeah, or, or yeah, I think I think there, there there's definitely a play to that. I, I think it's it's how you know maybe another way of phrasing it is how do you augment the clinician involvement in that with digital tools. Because when, when people are chronically ill, yeah, I, I recently had a, a woman on the phone who spent you know several calls with her, and it was telephonic, just telling her it's going to take a while and it's going to be okay. Uh, you know, you can say it was a digital tool. I, I was using a cell phone. There was a time to do that with her. There's a time to otherwise also you know interact with her through remote monitoring, through collecting biometrics. But there's also an opportunity to know when to interact with her with a voice. She just needed someone to help her when she was in a tough place. And, and I think, it, again, it's that nuancing of the tools and the tools that have the greatest ability to meet people where they are in their journey will be the ones that are think will be the most successful. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by the, the contrast, uh, depending on the lens of where you sit in the system. Um, so, you know, for the question uh, that Vanita framed and Tarun sort of edited real time, which I love, Sachin, how do you view that from a sort of payer lens? Yeah, I think, you know, we, you know, I agree with everything Tharun said. The one kind of adjunct that I'll make to, to his commentary is, is I think it's very, very important 
for whatever digital tools and solutions we use to integrate into the care settings in which patients actually receive their care. I think one of the concerning trends that we see is the verticalization of healthcare where vendors are building a set of tools, uh, delivery models, uh, and solutions that sit outside of the places where people traditionally get care. And in that case, the digitization of care can actually create more confusion, more complexity, and not actually solve complexity. And what you see is there's a number of these vendors and they come to, you know, plans like Scan and they want to charge you, you know, X dollars PMPM to be an adjunct solution, but they aren't going to do the work, the hard work to actually integrate into the traditional systems of care in which most people actually receive their cares, their care. And as a result, you end up having, you know, kind of this, you know, the, 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 the 2021 equivalent of what care management was in the 90s, which is this adjunct layer that sounds nice in concept, but that doesn't necessarily move outcomes or bend the cost curve. And so, uh, again, I'm most bullish on, and I, and I saw this play out at Caremore, where when you actually had, you know, the remote monitoring tools, you know, being used by the people who actually took care of, of these patients day to day, you could actually see them move outcomes. But when you were, you know, when they kind of were off to the side, delivered by a third-party vendor with an offshored, you know, you know uh, care call center um, that, you know, fundamentally didn't know very much about the patient and uh, intervened, uh, you know, episodically, um, again, I think you're creating more chaos than you are good. So, again, it's about integrating into the workflows and being part of the, of, of the traditional streams in which patients actually receive care and not, you know, mushrooming the group of people actually taking care of the patient. Yeah, and, and Vanita, um, just to respond to your question on digitization and high acuity care, I think it's a really uh, wonderful time. It just, it, it's an exciting time from the health system standpoint because I think where health systems need to go in terms of post-COVID recovery, looking for growth and relevance while meeting the needs of the community, as well as consumers wanting more non-acute settings, at-home, hospital-without-home type of settings, it's it's a wonderful time. Uh, our, obviously, I speak from the 65 systems perspective, um, but they're all creating digital front doors through physician acquisition, APP acquisition. And what's making it work is their di- digital toolkit. And it used to be that as you expanded, you had to expand contiguously, but digital platforms are now supporting geographic expansion that go beyond the physical boundaries and looking at their clinical service lines and spine and neuro and cancer, maternal, fetal, heart, psych. Um, it's the, the new toolkits that go beyond just telehealth and re- remote patient monitoring like diagnostics and connected um, medical devices and EHRs, which really have interoperability testing um, that allows the clinical uh, monitoring and diagnosis and treatment. And uh, I think it's group, it, it's, it's companies like Memora uh, and Manav, I'd like to hear from you, that connect the dots on all of that from a communication and trust standpoint. Yeah, I, I think one thing I'll note is that uh, the, the short answer to, 
to the original question of Benitez, yes, um, at least from my perspective, obviously, just given <laughs> given the fact that we've built Memora. But um, I, I think generally, just in the entire ecosystem, there's a lot of discussion about how um, you know we should try to keep as many people out of the hospital as as possible. Uh, you know, obviously, the answer to that in, to that question is yes, right? Obviously, we should try to keep as many people out of the hospital as possible. But uh, you know, to some degree, by definition, hospitals exist because there is a class of patients that are so critically ill that they need to be able to go to some in-person setting to receive care, right? And the large majority of tools, you know, especially in cases where patients are that ill that they're actually going into the hospital, that they're so at risk that they maybe have repeated visits. Um, in, in cases like that, the, the intention is not for tools to augment any part of that, right? Or it's not the, the intention of those tools to necessarily like almost like take parts of that patient's journey away from the hospital. It's almost a function as a connective tissue between there's a ton of time that this patient spends outside the four walls of the hospital where they use a ton of different tools, right? And then there's a, a spectrum of tools that are used directly inside the clinic to be able to manage this patient. And then a layer of tools on top of that, like EHRs, which allow us to track how patients are performing, right? Um, and I think that there's a, a really interesting role for digital health to play in connecting those dots and almost um, being like this layer of fabric that stitches all that information together so that you can much more comprehensively understand each of those patients. Yeah, and what COVID has, has really underscored um, among many things is the fact there's been a lot of the wrong kind of care given on a, a, in an acute tertiary quaternary setting that you could do in other settings. Um, but again, it's 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 connecting that whole um, spectrum uh, of potential um, provider access points that uh, really create the digital experience to con to support the consumer. Yeah, if I could just follow up on something uh, both Manov and, and Rebecca just talked about. You know, so I'm a hospitalist by training, uh, and you know, one of the biggest things is that, that a lot of times the patients who are in the hospital, yes, they're sick but they're not necessarily so sick that they had to be in an acute care facility. What's happening a lot of times is we're bringing them in because we need to coordinate their care more effectively, right? Because, you know, for you, I, I need you to see five, right? I need you to see five specialists within a few days so we can all talk, figure out what's going on with you, get the diagnostics. It would be almost an impossibility for a patient and their family to get that work done so what we end up doing is potentially compressing weeks, if not months, of outpatient work into a matter of a few days so we can make progress. And you know, if there is an opportunity to move that along in, in a more compressed time fashion, then, then there's really something magical happening. Uh, and a lot of times that is what is happening on med search floors, you know, and hence the, you know, the, 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 newer, the newer tools that are coming out to try to disrupt that. Yeah, I love that point, at least in the status quo, you know, sometimes that time differential and efficiency differential is so stark in an inpatient setting versus what might happen in an outpatient setting. So I'm hearing, you know, one of the ways in which digital health might still be underrated is in making really efficient care coordination across multiple providers um, for patients who need that. Because currently in the outpatient setting, that can just take, as you said, weeks to months. Just to play back what we've heard, digital health may also be underrated for engaging patients in the 99% of the time that they're not actually in their lives, you know, at the hospital or at the doctor's office. 
also potentially still underrated in terms of facilitating scaling of clinical service teams across geographies, maybe overrated in um, in creating silos of specialty specific care or carving out parts of patient care that can't be so neatly carved out in part because relationships are important. Um, yeah, you know, hey, Vanita, I would add one other thing, which is that if you think about the trajectory that could happen with digital health versus where it is now, so much of uh, healthcare is still very non-digital. And so there's tons of interfacing back and forth. And um, that I think really limits what digital health can do, but not its promise. And so as more areas hit critical mass, maybe within sub-verticals, uh, then I think there's a greater, greater chance. Maybe we'll see that in physical therapy, maybe we'll see that in virtual care for primary care or something, but that as that grows out, there may be various places that nucleate that are little pockets that are mostly digital or all digital. And, and then I think that's the greatest chance to see some of the benefits. And another thing that digital health can be very impactful on is there's going to be more and more focus on total cost of care. And there's so much unnecessary care provided in high cost uh, acute facilities that if it can help support new care models that appropriately place a consumer where they should be treated is going to be um, pretty magical. Agreed. So now I'll, I'll pose maybe the, a follow-up question, and please do take a side on this debate. If you had to pick, acknowledging that both are important, are you more bullish on digital health solutions which support core clinical care delivery, that is clinical decision support, digital diagnostics, you know, clinical coordination, or non-clinical support and navigation. That could mean helping make sure that patients are connected to transportation. That could mean finding resources for patients via, you know, grant funding to help support their drugs and all sort of a whole range of things that are not, um, that are more administrative, financial, or socioeconomic in nature. Please pick a side, clinical or non-clinical. What are you more bullish on? I, I'm going to chime in and just make a hard uh, uh, case for non-clinical. You know, the the work of being a patient in the U.S. healthcare system is is work. Um, we make it incredibly difficult to get things done, and I I see this both you know from the perspective of my day job, but also from the perspective of just seeing my parents, both of whom have multiple chronic diseases. Um, both of whom are otherwise sound of mind, but uh, are just overwhelmed with paperwork and questions of where to get what. Um, it is it is unbelievable to see actually as a as a son and as a family member. And so um, I think everything we can do to make the administrative tasks of having the right thing happen more than not um, will will make all the clinical work easier and enhance. I think the the ability for clinicians to deliver on the clinical mission, as opposed to getting bogged down in, you know, navigating preauthorizations and trying to get rebates for patients for novel therapeutics, I, I think it's just so important to to make it simpler. Well, and I would add, like, if you think about the the power of social determinants, it could be that the non-clinical areas are really underappreciated, and and there could be a greater sort of leverage there from that aspect. And maybe much more natural for tech-like logistics, like you know the type of things that Amazon could do uh, to to really make an impact. You could you could argue. Who wants to take the other side? 
Yeah. <laughs> or go ahead if you're on that side, no problem. Well, I was just going to say, Vijay, you could argue the other side of, of social determinants to your point is that one thing COVID painfully underscored was health equity ch uh, challenges. And because the minority communities are underserved, they don't receive preventative or chronic disease management in a timely fashion. So they're the ones often who end up with higher disease acuities and uh, disp disproportionately hospitalized. So I think there's a lot of potential on the clinical side for black and brown and underserved communities um, where they're more at risk uh, to utilize some of the, the clinical toolkit of um, re remote patient monitoring and telehealth, at-home colon cancer tests, diagnostics, but actually to renew the physician. So I, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. And, and yours, Benita, you're both physicians. Dan Sachin, I got a packed group. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll start. Um, so, Benita, it's a stacked question because, you know, access to health care is only only drives 10 percent of the health of a population. Right. So, you know, you, you, I think I have no choice. I concur with such comments from Rebecca on that. I would say in our current iteration of digital health, you know, let's call it 2.0. 1.0 was just getting things basically digitized. Now we're in this new ecosystem. Uh, you know, I, I would concur that it's the ease of tasks, the ease of getting things done that will have the greatest um, return in the upcoming years. At some point, though, that will hopefully stabilize. And, and then where the real you know, next generation opportunity comes into is being able to comb intelligently uh, the knowledge bases out there. You know, I would call that, you know, maybe digital 3.0. I mean, I, I think we're at the point now where just late last year or early last year, we, we crossed the point where medical knowledge is now doubling every 90 days. So when I um, teach my residents, I tell them, you know, it doesn't matter what comes out of my mouth because uh, everything you're going to learn from me by this rotation may be already out of, uh, out, of, out of fashion by the time I finish teaching it to you. So, you know, I, I actually don't even teach them knowledge facts. I just think teach them critical thinking skills much more and then you know they, they can look up the rest so you know i think i certainly see myself feeling very comfortable one day having a computer algorithm find the right clinical trial for me if heaven forbid i'm a cancer patient but what i still want is i still want the human being explaining to me the diagnosis the impacts and the side effects and how it's going to impact my family and how i can manage you know the stressors that go with it. yeah i i'll just chime in i i think one of the kind of big challenges that i think we run into in this space is that um i think we tend to think that everything we're, we're tending towards the idea that everything can be digitized and turned into algorithms and you know i think the physician perspective on this is that there's still much more gray than there is kind of black and white and that's where the judgment of trusted people you know ends up being super important. So I'll plus one what, what Theron has been driving here, which is, um, you know, the importance of, you know, digital tools enabling humans to do their jobs better. Vanita, I'd be curious what kind of training you got as a, a younger physician in terms of some of the comments that Tarun just made, because I think there's a whole generation of clinicians, advanced um, provider, you know, provider practitioners, physicians that are going to have a whole different focus on how they care for consumers versus people who are later in their careers? Uh, well, I have to say that I, I 
doubt that my training was dramatically different from any of the other physicians uh, on this call. I agree with the points that, you know, maybe in a world where there's more technology enabling care delivery, um, the of a provider's utility and value add shifts. Um, and I, I think that's a fascinating topic. What I'm hearing you guys say, though, is you're saying you care more, you want, you're more worried about and more bullish on digital health enabling access, enabling administrative automation, rather than um, core, core care delivery. Um, and I'm curious if anybody wants to take the other side of this debate. Yeah, I, I would, I know you said to pick a side, but I would probably take the side of both. Um, I think that it's really, really difficult. Like if you think holistically about a journey that a patient goes through when they get access to care, right? Um, there's a scheduling component, and that scheduling component has to flow seamlessly into educating a patient so that they ex understand exactly why they are getting that visit to their intake to, you know, actually telling them exactly what should happen after that visit. So I, I think that it's really, really hard to just bucket it as this is something that's clinical, this is something that's non-clinical. Like at the end of the day, a lot of even access-related initiatives are, are largely grounded in building really, really good digital health tools that are clinically oriented. And as a result, almost like one, educate patients to be a lot better about proactively seeking out care and giving them access to care. And then second, in parallel to that, making sure that um, they have all the right management resources for, for that care after it actually takes place. So uh, while I know that you said to pick a side. I, I think that the answer is, is some combination of both. And it's really difficult to just say like, hey, this is one bucket that that I think solutions should fall into or solutions have better or greater impact in. Fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Well, I will, for the purposes of argument, take <laughs> the clinical side, which is that, come on, guys, we're just like, we're we're barely the best doctors we can be without technology, right? We're just, I feel so limited. Where I mean, what if I could become this 10x doctor who could manage that many more patients and manage that many more follow-ups and manage entire panels at once versus managing my one-by-one -one patient flow that I have right now, I just see a ton of opportunity for digital health to fundamentally change how I practice medicine, right? To actually help me make better decisions, to help me learn from the last 100 patients that I took care of and you know, where my decision was right and where my decision wasn't. To your point, Rebecca, about medical education, it doesn't include any of this because we've never had the data to know if decisions we make were the right ones. So I hear all of the, all of the very important points on access and reducing administrative burden, but I think I, think I could also be a better clinician um, if I had more technology at my disposal. I, I, hate, I hate to bring up Amazon, but if you look what they're doing with Amazon Care and their psych, uh, their well-being and their um, mental mental health uh, programs, um, they're certainly leveraging on the clinical side digital. But as I look at how health systems are redesigning their org structure structures to support Pop Health and Network. Um, it probably is biased more on the administrative right now with all the new positions like chief experience officers, chief digital officers, pop health executives, chief transformation officers. Um, 
but I, my vote actually would be with Vanita and on the clinical because I think that's where the future is. Hey, hey Tarun, um, you know, we, I love, first of all, I love the 10X clinician, uh, Vanita, that's, that's a tweet storm coming. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, Tarun, you talked about the physician inbox actually being an overlooked aspect of what prevents a lot of physicians from doing great work. Do you want to share that perspective you shared earlier? Yeah, you know, Vinita and Rebecca, you know, listen, totally concur with your your thought process because I, I think then the term really becomes this digitally integrated health, right? And 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 all, so often we're talking about it in a binary term: is it analog? Is it digital? And it, it you know, the the best things are never one or the other. Even listening to music, at some point, right? You can convert. You got to convert the streaming service into an analog signal so your ear can actually appreciate it. You know, running it straight into your brain may not necessarily do it. And I think that's what we're all talking about and understanding how to how to integrate those things. And you know, but you know, Venka, to your point, we still put awful amounts of analog work on our on our clinicians. And so, you know, one of the things we studied in our health system was how much time do our clinicians spend after hours going through their inbox. Because the beauty of we said now is, hey, look, you have one single electronic inbox for you to work out of. The problem is, is we created one single inbox to put all their stuff in, and we haven't taken the noise out. And we keep pushing everything up to the clinician as the final decider. And what ends up happening is our clinicians, on average, we're spending 90 minutes to 120 minutes after dinner every night doing cleanup. And that's just to keep, that wasn't prep for, for the next day. That was just to close out their day. And, you know, I think, you know, this, this fundamental shift that also has to happen where there is a huge opportunity with digital is to help, help me understand the difference between what I really need to focus on and what you can help me with. Uh, a story I'll share with when we went live with electronic medical records in our hospital um, and said, someone came to me and, and said, hey, look, I can show you um, the last 10 discharge summaries from this patient in the hospital. And I was meeting somebody from the hospital. And I said, you know how long it would take me to read all 10 of those discharge summaries? More time than I have for the rest of my shift to see the next 10 patients who are in the emergency room. That's where there's an opportunity to really start integrating digital care, digital augmentation of saying, you know what, I want to query this using natural language processing. Tell me if this person out of these 10 discharge summaries has ever had a pulmonary embolism, because that's what I'm trying to figure out today. So you know, that's where we can go with it. Uh, the, the most immediate opportunity, because we've been still so, you, know, you can code a, a practice schedule digitally relatively easily, right? Established care, new care, XYZ, that's very algorithmic base. Once we get those basic algorithms done, then we can get into these far more complex algorithms, which is called med school and residency training. And, and one thing I'll also note is I, I imagine like the large majority of folks, if you surveyed them, would probably say administrative, right? Just because one, I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit there. But but second is largely just because, you know, folks have tried to build digital health tools for clinical use cases in the past, and, and the large majority of them have flopped extremely hard just because, you know, building tools that adapt to clinical workflows are, is extremely hard, right? I think that we see a lot of this at at Memora even, where every single time we're working with a new set of clinicians and a new set of, of um, service lines, the workflow is entirely different. So we've had to build a lot of like, our entire like product development mentality is very much around, hey, we're going to build infrastructure that can build for the next 10 use cases instead of 
trying to build for this one use case and do that use case really, really well. Because, you know, even if you do that for, you know, medical oncologists at, at one institution, every single medical oncologist that you find at another institution are probably, you know, has a slightly different workflow. So I think that, um, experience is also a pretty good indicator of why a lot of people would probably not pick the clinical side. Yeah. I, even though I there's would, a lot I, of I want to ask, you know, I want to ask the group, you know, uh, what I call the Amun Bandari question. Uh, Amun's a good friend of mine. We've, he's been working in digital health and in and around digital health, healthcare data for a long time. And, 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 the audience. Hey, Amun. and, and he <laughs> makes, and he, and he makes the observation that, you know, like there has not been a thing in digital health that has actually improved the care of his, you know, aging parents who are in their late seventies and early eighties, um, over the last decade. And, you know, it's kind of sobering when, when, you know, someone asks that question, I, I guess I would ask this group, whether there's, you know, with all the investment, with all of the, you know, kind of hype around this, you know, can anyone point to anything, um, that has actually, you know, meaningfully moved the care of people you care about? I actually think there's some pretty good studies in rural health and the use of telehealth around the country. Um, and I and I think we'd be remiss if we hadn't touched on what Tarun so uh, eloquently talked about in terms of physician burnout and 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 using digital health um, to to help clinicians in uh, to work more effectively. We had a, a burnout and a resilience situation before COVID, and I think uh, if you go health system to health system, the fatigue, the PTSD, the anxiety, the depression is palpable among all clinicians if they've stayed around and haven't left or taken early retirement. And I think digital health tools can be uh, amazingly uh, effective and timely in helping rationalize day-to-day uh, uh, -day workday as well as clinical decisions through AI protocols. I, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, and, you know, feels that way about digital tools. I, I mean, I think it come, really comes down to what are, you know, what are the outcomes we're trying to push for? Because here's the other reality of it. A lot of the analogs tools haven't really been very, very, very beneficial either. Right. Um, yeah, so, I, I think that's an important point. Are we applying an exceptional bar to the digital health? Tool? I don't. I don't know. You guys have a conflict of interest. <laughs> just, <I'm> just <laughs> this is. I'm, I'm just calling it out. Well, yeah. Let's push on that. Like, uh, what do you think conflict interest is, and 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 where can we align? No, I was. I was just saying. <laughs> I, you know, sorry, I was on mute. Um, yeah. Not to poke too much fun on the, on my investor friends, but you know, there's a lot of people who've got a lot of incentive to say that digital tools and technologies are going to, are going to change the universe. And I guess the question is where, what the frontline reality is for, you know, mom and grandma and whether their care is meaningfully different, you know, today. And I, and I think it's kind of a, a false argument to compare it to, to analog tools. Um, you know, analog tools aren't sitting around saying they're going to three X or five X or 10 X productivity and outcomes. Um, I guess the question I would have just asked is the old, you know, where's the beef question? Yeah, you know, I mean, historically, this is the way it always goes, though, which is that the new tools that have this capability start slow. Like, you know, early exponentials always look pretty flat. And so the problem is that it's hard to tell between the thing that is going to explode and the thing that's not in the early days. So um, I agree with you. The, the proof is in the doing. Uh, but uh, it's, it's kind of hard to tell in the early days which way it's going to go. 
Yeah, and I also think, Sachin, I'd, I'd be curious, because I, I agree with you, by the way, that sometimes in healthcare, like, there's some very basic things in, quote-unquote, the analog world that are really helpful. But the challenge we have today in 2021 is that even the analog things that we know uh, are helpful require, like, superhero efforts. And I don't just mean mean from clinicians. I mean from, like, everyone in the system. And the question is, like, can we add more leverage? I guess that's, like, sort of, you know, where, where it's going to. Um, but I actually like the skepticism because that's going to keep everyone honest. Yeah, and I guess I'll just keep pushing and saying, like, where is a place where we've done that? And, um, you know, I spent a couple of years in the real-world data space at, at, at uh, Merck, um, again, you know, there's a, a lot of promise there. There continues to be a lot of promise there. Um, and I just think the hype cycle is always like 10 to 15 to 20 years ahead of the delivery cycle. Um, and so, you know, again, I do think we, we have to keep ourselves honest as clinicians, practitioners in the field around, you know, what's real and what's not. Cause I think we, we may have that reality we may have that view, but I think there's a lot of folks who get very carried away very quickly and, you know, don't ask these basic fundamental questions. You know, rural health is a, a critical issue in this country. And as hospitals, after hospitals have closed, maybe appropriately, uh, the use of telehealth and re remote patient monitoring has been pretty powerful. And what I've seen in terms of the seniors' adoption of telehealth has been quite strong. Uh, uh, and, you know, and it expand it extends to maternal and um, fetal health and and psychiatry and a number of other areas. So um, that's that's one area that I think there is some pretty hard. But but did on. we need but did we need billion dollar startups to kind of get there? You know, did we have smartphones? I mean, most practices. Have, that we might we might take EHRs and telemedicine tools out of the category of digital health. That's fair. Well, re remote patient monitoring and diagnostics and testing. I mean, Optum had some very good experience with colon testing during COVID when no one wanted to go in and get their colonoscopies. They shipped the colon tests. Uh, and that happens to hit the African-American and black communities pretty seriously. Uh, yeah, I, I think a couple of points. One is I think that there are a lot of examples of digital health tools like materially moving the needle on actual clinical outcomes, I think that uh, two things that are worth noting. One is basically every single, it seems as if every single company that to some degree does work around, uh, does any sort of clinical work that's a digital health tool seems to kind of take from the same bucket or like they all move the needle on the same exact like 30-day readmissions outcome and, and things like that. Um, if you boil it down to like one really, really simple example, and I think this is something that we saw early on with Memora, is if you built a platform that quite literally just automatically sent out text messages to patients on very, very like, you know, drugs that have really high toxicity. So examples are like oral chemo drugs, right? And one automatically sent out reminders telling people when to take their medications so that they, you know, ad adhere to them. And then second, Lots of proactive guidance around exactly what they should expect, why it's important to take that medication, um, exactly what next steps will follow from it. I think that particularly one case study that we saw is we almost moved the needle on adherence by almost 50%, right? Uh, the alternative to that from like these quote-unquote analog tools is like most folks in the healthcare world that like the, the alternative to having even like a very simple digital tool, it doesn't have to be any like fancy complex AI thing that spent that, you know, that costed millions and millions of dollars to make. 
um, is people will literally hire like 25 people call centers to just call these patients and do that, right? There's still health systems in the country that call patients just to remind them of their appointments instead of automatically sending them a text message to do so, right? Which even, you know, small businesses like restaurants have started adopting. So I think one, uh, questioning like the actual outcome that you want to move the needle on is super, super important, making sure that there's a very clear kind of causal link. Um, and then in, in parallel to that, like I think the question that Anita and Tarun asked was, is correct in terms of just what bar do you set, right? Like the bar right now in healthcare is so incredibly low, even for these analog or manual processes to move the needle, that digital health tools don't have to increase productivity by 5x, even if they increase it by one and a half x, you know, it's, it's tremendous. And, you know, it's true. And, you know, just, you know, just to, I'm going to misphrase it, but I'm going to try to paraphrase it, right? It's the, it's the Deming quote from back in the 50s, right? It, every system's perfectly designed to give the results it gives. If we simply take the current system and digitize it, we're going to be, lo and behold, guess what word results we're going to get? Not a whole lot different than what we get with the analog system, other than the pure rote efficiencies of operations and amount up to your point. We'll get the 1.5 or 2x return on, on operational efficiencies, which, by the way, for an integrated delivery network today, could be the, living, the difference between life and death of survival. Yeah. But what we would potentially miss out on is the 10x opportunity if we simply take the current processes and we don't, you know, if we could comply, add both, mix them together. In the process of redesigning the, the way we deliver healthcare, which I think for the most part we recognize in the United States is relatively inefficient compared to the actual technologies we have and the ability to care for patients and add digitization on that, now you're talking true synergies, right? True multiples. That's where I think there's a major opportunity. So and that's a good segue into, into my last debate here that I want you guys to have, which is what level of technology sophistication is going to be required to move the needle, as Sachin said, on chronic complex care? What I mean by that is sometimes it feels like a WhatsApp group for care teams would go like an insanely long way. And other times it feels like we really need predictive analytics to make some type of judgment that human providers like sitting in an emergency department looking at a new patient could never even dream of making. If you had to pick a side, so-called fancy tech versus basic tech, and you had a limited amount of capital to put into investing behind you know, those two categories of solutions, where would you put your money? And where would you put your organization's money? Since some of you are making these. Vanita, where, where are you putting the predictive analytics? In the fancy or fancy. the oh, That's home? fancy. That's fancy. That's Predicting fancy. the future is fancy. <laughs> Logistics is basic. But let's, let's just, for simplification, you could argue there's a lot of predictive analytics that go into getting logistics right too. But call it... Um, well, tell me if you, if you're if the if the framing doesn't resonate, we can. We no, can well, I, I mean, I think. Where, where do you? Yeah, what level I, of sophistication? I think if you asked our 65 members in LI, they would uh, they would embrace predictive analytics and where AI is going. Very welcoming. 
Like my only pushback on that would be, and uh, there, you know, I remember Pam Peel at UPMC talking about this. She said, you know, we did the analytics on on something. You know what the number one predictor of someone's sixth hospitalization is? Their fifth. You know, and and so the question comes down to is where we are right now. Is if you know, I it'd be great to know what's going to happen to me in three years. But if I already, if we know that. The number our patients keep on getting readmitted for basic reasons because the most important transition of care that happened that needs to happen today in healthcare rarely gets tracked, and that is the transition of care from the clinician's office to the pharmacy, right? Because if they don't pick up their medicines, at least in an allopathic or osteopathic world, that is our number one treatment modality right now. We're not even managing that transition of care. Yeah. So, it's, so you know, yeah. yeah so I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I think it's like a Kano curve to some extent, right? You know, basic mm-hmm. and then very fancy over time. It becomes expected. It becomes table stakes. So I would put my vote for now and in basic. We have we have a lot of data and a lot of analytics right now that people just don't act on. I mean, we can create lots of lists of patients, but if we don't have the bandwidth and our schedules and the teams of people to actually serve those patients, um, you know, I, I, I think we have an organizational and structural problem within delivery organizations where, you know, I think our analytics capabilities um, and our ability to find insights about what to do exceed our capabilities around actually doing anything about the knowledge of what to do. So I think we have to play, you know, organizations like mine um, have to play catch up on the capability side around what to actually do once once you've actually, you know, found the, the patients through the analytics that Rebecca's referencing. But Sachin, then you're, you're arguing really for a role for VC and these quote billion dollar firms because health systems and providers don't have the wherewithal or the knowledge to to develop those areas that you're saying need developing. And to me, that's where um, the VC world plays a, a, a really valuable role in the future of our Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not arguing, I'm not arguing against the role of VCs. I'm just arguing that we should just be honest about what's been accomplished and not been accomplished. R- Rich, Fair enough. A couple Rich, votes for basic is what I'm hearing. And Rebecca, you're, you're thinking maybe maybe some longer-term bets at the same time from yeah. the health system executives that you work with. Manav? Um, I think that the, you know, my answer to this is probably advanced as master basic, right? I think that it's possible to build, you know, like there's, there's such rich data sets in healthcare that you can extract, especially if you, you think about that in the context of our healthcare system, sickest patients in really large, you know, academic health systems and really large community-based health systems, large hospitals. Um, the, the challenge is that, you know, in most cases, the end users of these platforms aren't looking for something that's super, super sophisticated, right? They're looking for something that's as simple as like being able to text their doctor, being able to schedule an appointment online using a form and not having to pick up the phone, right? Things like that. So I think, you know, very kind of simple front end with some form of a complex backend that actually truly understands that the, the patient and the end user is, is my answer. Yeah, I think that's a good point. One way to kind of merge the perspectives that you all just shared is that, you know, it's worth kind of bringing the best technology, but to like the basic problems, like we have to solve the basic problems before we get involved with solving um, kind of the higher order uh, problems as we go beyond access and care coordination and so on into kind of predicting patient outcomes and 
prognosticating patients and so on. It's almost like before we get there, we have to earn the right to do that by pointing good technology at basic problems. And so maybe it's not so much about whether the tech itself is fancy or basic, but about how straightforward and understandable and comprehensible the problems to which we apply the tech is. I do think we're at risk in this industry, such and I appreciate your calling us us out as a community of at risk of overfunding what I call extremely basic tech that is yeah. too commoditized and that doesn't have any uh, you know, doesn't quite deserve kind of that level of of funding. I feel that way to some extent about some of the telemedicine and remote patient monitoring tools that exist today. So I do think we should continue to look for sophisticated tech that can scale, that can learn, uh, but maybe point it at so-called basic problems. You know, I, I would add one thing, which is that you could create one of those dreaded two by twos about basic versus advanced and um, high impact, low impact. And, you know, sure, if there's a basic high impact thing, it would be dumb not to go after it. But if the choice and obviously advanced and low impact, nobody wants to do that. But if the choice between basic and low impact or advanced and high impact, uh, which I think is often the real choice sometimes, uh, I think to really demonstrate that these technologies are useful, might have to do the advanced to get that impact. And, and maybe that's what's been holding something back. All right. Well, we've pulled a few people up here. Venkat, I'm going to hand it over to you um, to moderate a little bit of a discussion and um, help us include more people in the conversation. Yeah, it's amazing. I uh, I feel like we should just you know continue the conversation. Um, you know, there's many that sort of to sort of Suchin's point on what adds value and what doesn't. I feel like we need different perspectives. Um, so. Maybe we'll start actually with uh, Pete Fleischit from New York Presbyterian, who also sort of sits in between, you know, digital entrepreneurs, investors, and a very large academic system. So, Pete, let me let me turn it over to you. Thanks a lot, Venkat. Um, it's a really great conversation tonight. Um, you know, I I find it very hard sometimes when I think about this because a lot of our approaches I think are very incremental when it comes to some of the aspects of digital health digital health. I think we need to be thoughtful um, to the conversation and make sure that we are actually improving things. But I still think that we're way too incremental. We saw it over the past year, how transformative remote patient monitoring, telehealth and everything can really improve access. And it's a shame to see that we're kind of regressing. I think we need to have a much more quantum approach to getting this out to all sorts of populations. And so I think the conversation is helpful in hearing that. Any perspectives, um, Pete, on where where you're investing as an organization in digital health initiatives for our sickest patients? Um, sure. I think our feeling has been that telehealth is definitely the way to go, but it's way, way too transactional. And for a system like ours or someone like Rich's system or many people on here, that it really needs to be an end-to-end -end solution that if you just take some of these transactional digital health services that exist, it's too fragmented and too hard for patients to be able to navigate from the beginning to the end. <clears throat> and you really do need to have an end-to-end -end digital platform to do that. So that's easier said than done because we are very transactional. We make it very hard for people to go everything from the registration to finding a doctor 
to seeking out care, to getting the diagnostic test, to actually getting a procedure and then getting a therapy. Um, but I think that's where the conversation needs to go to a truly end-to-end digital service and not just one transactional uh, telehealth product. Cool to hear for chronic disease management. That's great. Rich, you want to you add to what Pete just said, since especially since he yeah. called you out? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's funny, like a couple of years ago, we realized that our head of care coordination was like in every meeting. So if it was an RPM meeting, she was in that meeting. If it was a social determinant meeting, she was in that meeting. If it was a digital meeting, she was in that meeting. And so, you know, we got to this uh, kind of internal, you know, point that every company is a care coordination company. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, uh, the the challenge I think we, we all have with all of these solutions is, you know, where is the care coordination to kind of, you know, run them all uh, and to really be the pilot for uh, this, you know, this change, right? Because I think ultimately, you know, the the algorithms directing to the right change, probably combined with, you know, the other the other piece to this is some really good, you know, patient engagement and patient endpoint. Because what makes those unique companies so good sometimes is they engage the patients uniquely. It might be a different subsegment of patients, like seniors or Latinx population, what have you. But um, you know, I, I guess where we're where we're kind of really thinking through is, you know, what is this overall command center approach that you know takes takes into account this chance to really transform and change, but does it in a way where it coordinates the orchestra uh, instead of having, you know, twenty or, or 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 thirty different smaller things. So, you know, we're we're actively looking for you know how we you know how we coordinate that to. You know, create create real change. I think, you know, if we can do that, the level of transformation that Pete's talking about is really within our grasp. Um, if we can't do it well, I think we're going to send people in thirty seven different directions. I also want to just sort of get a perspective of uh, a physician uh, on the front lines. Ethan, do you want to uh, welcome? By the way, back to this clubhouse talk. Curious what your perspective is. Front lines. I'm on the front lines of making dinner. Um, I, um, uh, I don't know. I, I came in late and it's a really interesting conversation. I guess, um, you know, I always start these thought experiments with sort of what do we, uh, what do we want? What do we as patients and what do we as physicians want to be better, uh, in this process? And, um, you know, I think, Sometimes that's dangerous. I'll give the example of of this past year, whereas if you'd asked me in March of 2020 if I would ever enjoyed seeing patients over Zoom, I would have said, "Not you, you're high. No, never. And, uh, and the reality is that I now still see 80 or 90% of my patients by Zoom, and, and I love it, and I think they love it. Uh, so I think sometimes it's hard to anticipate how some of these technologies will change and improve our practice. But but I'm, I'm sort of a oldie when it comes to things like this i sort of start with like what are the problems and how can we use technology to improve our experiences sorry that's not very profound i'm just finishing dinner hey listen dinner is the whole advantage of this medium is you get to have dinner and chat about you know complex care solutions by the way Sachin, i'm trying to get Amin back out here on the stage too so we can uh get get his perspective as well i will uh see if i can get him um, okay, I just I know there are a couple people with um, questions, thoughts, 
let me go to Nathan Bays, um, who's actually on the a board of a, a company, on, you know, tackling social determinants and um, is an, an a venture investor uh, and an advisor. So he's, he's done a lot of things. Nathan, over to you. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. Uh, from the note picture, you can tell I'm not a clubhouse <laughs> regular. Right. Um, no, I appreciate uh, you having me on. And look, I just I just shine, you know, Pete Fleischer and Rich Roth's shoes. Right. So so I'm just, you know, following in their <laughs> footsteps from the wise men. But no, look, I think it's been a great conversation. And I, I think that um, one of the things I'll just kind of throw this out, I think that from a, a provider perspective is that, um, you know, oftentimes, there's a desire, it feels to me like, that, you know, on the provider side, there's a desire to be kind of all things to, to all people. And when I hear, you know, Pete talk about end to end, you know, he's definitely right in that. Um, but then I think it comes down to the question of like, what can you do and do well? And what should you either be partnering, you know, with others on and what should you actually maybe not be doing, right? And leaving, you know, to other stakeholders within the ecosystem. And I guess I'm saying that more through kind of like an integrated health, you know, system lens, but I think it could be applicable to, to lots of others. And, you know, the reality is, you know, I think there's certainly a, you know, a, a higher calling from a clinical perspective of wanting to be everything to your patients. But I think that, you know, as, as technology advances more, and I think that specialization is, you know, deeper within all aspects of society, but including in healthcare, I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting opportunities for, you know, provider organizations to say, you know, look, we need to be end-to-end, we need to have end-to-end solutions, but we're only going to do these parts, right? And in the other parts, we're either going to, you know, to partner with a company that will, will help us with those, or maybe we'll just say, you know, someone else can do it, right? Maybe telehealth at the front end, at the low acuity level, becomes a commodity that's performed by tech companies or by, you know, some aggregation of, of you know, Teladocs and Amwells or, or others. And, uh, you know, we're just not going to be in that business, right? We're going to be in, in other businesses and, and we're going to make sure that we care for patients better that way. And so I think that that, you know, the continuum piece and, and where everyone plays um, is going to be one of the things that I think shakes out over the course of this decade. And I think is going to be really interesting. All right. I am. Thanks, Nathan. Um, I am um, watching time here and I do want to squeeze in time for two more questions if the group can stay on. This has been an amazing conversation, by the way, and appreciate uh, the group's input to date. Um, Let me just go real quick uh, over to Namrita and then we'll wrap with Tom. Hi, everyone. Great conversation today. And thank you for having me up on stage. So I work as a primary care physician and also as a health tech investor. And I do believe that there's a big opportunity for digital health in multidisciplinary care in terms of coordinating specialist nurses, palliative care teams, social care teams, the primary care physician and secondary care specialists, and um, providing interoperability for all of those um, members of the team into the EHR as well as capturing more of the data from their individual consultations to inform how patients are cared for um, and including how they're feeling and their vitals. I also see there's an opportunity for AI, you know, uh, risk stratification of the sickest patients, flagging them up to the right patient, sorry, to the right person to review at the right time, um, see when symptoms are deteriorating and if the patient is at risk of a hospital admission. Uh, we've seen some really interesting research from Google 
about AI, um, using AI to predict outcomes in hospital. Um, and I think we're going to see more in the community. And then on Vanita's question about uh, non-clinical or clinical digital health, my vote goes to non-clinical work for clinicians. So right now, there's a huge administrative burden to physicians. And um, working in a value-based care system, as a primary care physician, I'm a fund holder. And the primary care physician has to authorise referrals for the care to be reimbursed. And so much of time is spent filling out referral forms. There's duplication of data entry. There's um, a really massive opportunity to, to code all that care that's being provided. And I agree 100% with Taryn that uh, reading and coding of discharge letters is a huge opportunity. Um, just some other things I would mention is workflows. Um, in workflows, like some of the work that Mon is doing, I think is going to be crucially important um, in terms of triaging patients at the digital front door, directing them to the right person so that they can see an MSK specialist or the sexual health clinic rather than the primary care physician. And my last point would be there's also an opportunity in data privacy on the security side, enabling patients to hold their own data and control who has access to it and what for. And those are my main thoughts. Thank Amen. You. Amen. I hope we get to see digital health um, service uh, care delivery in, in multiple of those formats. And I loved your phrase, um, non-clinical uh, you know that that you're kind of voting for non digital health to enable non clinical tasks for our clinicians. I think that um, that would resonate with this with this whole group. Thank you. And then um, maybe we'll have Tom um, have the the last question comment, and then we can wrap from there. Tom, no pressure here. <laughs> um, thank you very much for having me up on stage. Um, uh, hi, everybody. I uh, represent Rock Health. I guess this is a question for Sachin and uh, Vanita and maybe anybody uh, on the stage. I think um, one of the things uh, that we don't always take into account is that a complex care population is the care population that doesn't trust us. Um, you know, Ivalice Sandino, um, working uh, through her organization, Radical Health, is working with circles of people who um, who are creating trust in one another, and then influencing uh, whether that they are accessing the healthcare system at all. Um, that that's a that's a very different model than the ones we've been talking about, and I'm. I'm interested in your your all's take on how do we embrace those models that don't reflect um, starting from the inside and moving out to patients, but rather starting from the outside and moving in to the delivery system. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? Good to good to see you. I I think you make a really really good point. Um, I think trust ends up being kind of the most uh, important piece of all of this. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, going back to some of what Thurn said about kind of the importance of, of kind of, you know, merging um, 
you know, kind of the, the, the humanistic elements with, uh, the digital tools and technology and having the digital tools and technology enabling kind of the humanity of people, uh, to, to touch more people, I think is, is really, you know, the crux of what we have to accomplish. Um, uh, but I, but I think this point about, you know, the folks who are not even in the system, how do you get them? How do you use, you know, tools to, to pull them in, um, is a critical one. And it's one where, you know, I think, you know, some of what Rebecca said around analytics, you know, using, um, data to identify folks who are not necessarily being touched. And, but then I think the key question is how do you create the bandwidth within the system to actually pull those folks in and creating the focused and specialized effort around it. Um, I think, you know, the one plug I'll, I'll, I'll make, um, to kind of conclude, you know, my, my participation is just the importance of leadership around these topics can't be overstated. I think, um, a lot of these tools and technologies have existed in, in some lesser form than they, than they do today, um, in previous generations. But I think, you know, you know, there's been a failure of leadership to actually, you know, actualize these things in an organization, give them priority. Um, and, and I think that's, that's where this stuff is going to become real going forward. Um, so that's my, those are my final thoughts. And I would just say that as health leaders are infamous for not telling their story well. And I, I remember a boss talk with Mark and Ben, and they were talking about trust and communication. And they said, if you have a lot of trust, you, you need less communication because you just know um, but in large organizations, there there is not a lot of trust, and uh, and so anything that can help with communication is absolutely critical. So I just want to uh, end with thanking Manav for founding Memora because I know how, how how it helps and strengthens communication in a large ecosystem like a health system. Tom, I love your question, <clears throat> and. Um... For me, it goes back to kind of the notion of a basic problem versus versus a fancy problem, as we were chatting about. And for the patient, the fancy problems might change their outcome or might change our ability to select the right drug for them or to pick the exact right diagnostic or, you know, or something kind of that is not in the realm of trust building actually with them because they don't get to experience why that problem was so important to solve for them. Um, now, I'll give you a, a, a concrete example. I recently saw a patient who was Chinese speaking, you know, more than five years out from the completion of her breast cancer therapy, really does not speak English. And so it became obvious that, you know, had, she hadn't had the opportunity to fully understand long-term side effects of these therapies, why a certain therapy had caused her to have bone density loss and what she could do about it. And, you know, basic tools helped in that situation really build trust. Um, and that, that was the availability of, uh, you know, of a always on translator service. Um, you know, it was kind of one example, maybe not even something that would rise to the level of digital health, but then that, you know, I think helped build enough trust that I think she would be receptive potentially now to, you know, more advanced interventions or other ways of digitally monitoring whether or not she's taking calcium and vitamin D and all the, all these other interventions that we could do that would be fancier, but we had to start someplace basic where she felt heard for the first time in a while in terms of, you know, somebody explaining why why people were doing the tests that they were doing. Um, 
and, and so I hope we can see more examples like that where we kind of graduate from basic to, to fancy and, and earn trust along the way. Yeah, and, couldn't and one couldn't agree more. more. Thank you. One thing I'd even add to that is like, from, from our perspective, one of like the most responded to questions that like our platform sees is literally just asking patients for their language preference and asking them what channel they prefer. I think that like, at the end of the day, one of the biggest questions is not just like, hey, can we get this person through our doors? And can we uh, actually deliver care to this person? But it, it's like, does the, does the patient feel as if they're actually being cared for? Through something simple, like especially, and I think this is a question, especially for like leaders across health systems is like, is there any tool inside of a healthcare system that knows exactly what a patient's language preference is? And exactly if they prefer to get messages over text or if they def- you know, prefer to get it through a mobile app or through a phone call or something like that. Um, and I think that that's just, it's such a critical driver of whether or not any clinical intervention that we ever design will actually work for that patient. All right. Well, <clears throat> I think we are just slightly over time. Thank you to all of our guests um, for joining, both um, audience members uh, you know, towards the end, as well as um, all the guests who joined throughout the discussion really, really appreciate your time. Um, and none of these debates that I posed are obviously as binary as um, we, we tried to force ourselves uh, to view them as today. And so I hope we'll have the opportunity to continue debating all the nuance that lives all along the spectra um, of those questions in the coming weeks and months. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. We'll see you all next Monday. This was fantastic. All right. Good night, guys. Thanks, everyone, for the opportunity. Have a good evening.